0: Hey guys, welcome back to The Real Estate Monopoly. My name is Kerwin.
1: And this is Jeffrey.
0: And we are live today. Uh, Jeff is here. Typically, it's either Jeffrey or Kenneth. And sometimes we'll have like a third brother, but...
1: Kerwin's uh, always here.
0: Yeah, I'm always the the constant. But today we have an awesome guest. Bradley, what's up?
2: Guys, what's happening? It's good to meet uh, the twins. Yes, yes.
0: So we're typically the triplets, but Kenneth isn't here. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah,
1: yeah. People call us the Jonas
0: Brothers, yeah. but we're not. Yes, but Bradley, please tell us about you. Where are you at right now? And, and just give us a little bit of background.
2: Yeah, of course. So I'm in San Diego, California. I'm a principal of Symphony Capital Group. You may uh, already know my partner, Ellis. I think he's scheduled to do a podcast with you guys sooner <laughs> rather than later, right? Uh, but Ellis has some some brands and runs Kingdom REI. So a lot of people see his face on on social media, but we are Symphony Capital Group. Uh, In addition to our partners, Jeremy and Keith, we've been buying roughly 100-unit and greater properties in Kansas City, Austin, Houston, and now Dallas, Texas, where we are closing on a 200-unit property this week.
1: Awesome. 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 And do you mind me asking, how long have you been with Ellis?
2: We've been uh, formed up for about three years now. We're on deal number six.
0: That's awesome. I love it. I love it. And what's your role on the team?
2: Uh, more or less an operations centric uh, mm-hmm. position. So once it's been acquired, the other three guys should keep focusing on more capital and more deals. And yeah. I should focus on actually executing the business plan. So gotcha. uh, if anyone's going to fly to Dallas, it's probably going to be me. And if anyone's going to uh, track weekly updates, KPIs and ensure we're actually performing, that's going to be in my wheelhouse as well. I, I do get it. into uh, a lot of the capital raise because when you're buying a 40 40- Forty-four million-dollar property, and you're raising nineteen million. It's an all hand, all hands deck on, mm-hmm. all hands on deck type of situation, right. just like we're seeing this summer with a lot of different uh, variables yeah. that we might get into. So
0: that's awesome, Bradley. And I'd love to know. I know you were in the Navy, and you were a helicopter pilot, I believe. Can you expand on what your background was before real estate, and how you even came about coming across uh, multifamily investing or just investing in real estate
2: in general? Yeah, man. So I uh, graduated in 2012 from Marquette. I'm originally from Wisconsin, and at that time, I immediately joined joined the Navy. I'd been on a ROTC scholarship, and I went down to Pensacola, Florida, to learn to fly. And awesome. um, that was kind of the game plan. And back then, you know, I started college in 2008 when the Great Financial Crisis was going on, and it was kind of like a blood in the streets, or at least a blood in the Wall Street situation. And um, it was so severe that you didn't know what was going to happen. And while I was in college, you just heard about people struggling, trying to find jobs, people coming out of retirement. And I felt great about you know joining the Navy and having a guaranteed paycheck and job and flying helicopters, which was a pretty cool way to spend yeah. uh, spend your twenties. I mean, I really enjoyed it. But while I did that decade of service, right about in the middle of it, I just knew like I needed to get my hands on my own thing. I wanted to be my own person, control my own schedule, my own job, my own destiny. And I was aware of a lot of different investment methods. I was doing a lot of stuff that you'll see publicized on social media now. I was interested in stocks, options, real estate. I was uh, very aware of Forex. I got my hands on all different types of things. I made a lot of money. I lost a lot of money. But the thing that kept working for me was real estate. And I could see the potential there. And I started to understand why it was so attractive to folks, in particular, people who perhaps had made a good amount of cash, good amount of wealth outside of real estate and just weren't aware of the benefits and weren't sure what was stable, what made sense. And the more and more you look at all the different sectors, there's something tried and true within real estate that continues to work for people. So in my opinion... It's not a matter of whether or not real estate works for you or doesn't work for you. It's a matter of whether or not you realize real estate works for you. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I can break that down. But basically, real estate was constantly the successful investment. And I could see that the more I did it, the more successful, more success I would have. And so basically, 2018, I start telling my wife, hey, let's transition. This is what I want to do. I'm not sure what it w- looks like yet. I'm gonna find some partners and we're gonna start a firm and I think it's gonna be commercial real estate. And sure enough, 2019, I meet the guys, join the group, and uh ended up hitting the ground running while I was still in the Navy. So that was kind yeah. of wild, man, because like I, I went on a deployment during that. So how do you Yeah, yeah. We yeah. we bought multiple properties while I was on deployment. So granted the you air. guys were doing the heavy lifting, <laughs> but I'm on the other side of the world getting into like Zoom calls. I'm literally in the middle of the ocean, like showing up for team meetings. Uh, just trying to stay up to date on email. Trying to kick, you know, at the time the few investors I had towards the guys to ensure we got that next, you know, hundred thousand dollar deposit in. I mean, it was it was like drinking from uh, drinking <laughs> from a fire hose in terms of lessons learned and understanding yeah. what I was capable of while sailing around uh, the Philippines and o- over by Thailand and China and whatnot. And then yeah. when I got home, it was kind of like. Okay, uh, we've done a few things while I was gone, and now it's time to put all my time and effort into the company. And I was able to exit the Navy uh, pretty much as soon as I got home. And I'm full time, full time syndication now. It's been uh, just doing this all day, every day um, for pretty much all of 2022, and it's been fantastic.
1: That's awesome. And just curious because obviously you were doing the flying with the Navy. Do you mind breaking what that looked like? Like, what exactly were you doing? I mean, Oh, were you? Who were you flying around? Where were you going, and why? And yeah, so I'm actually, not sure I keep, if it's cl-
2: yeah. I keep the helicopter on the wall there. I yeah. don't know if that comes up in enough detail yeah, yeah, yeah. through uh, Zoom YouTube. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look it up. MH60 Romeo. That was my platform. Uh, it's a 60, like a Blackhawk. They come in all different variants, and our bread and butter missions were anti-surface warfare, which is basically blowing up small, uh, small and medium-sized ships, and then anti-submarine warfare. Which is running around the ocean trying to find submarines that are trying to sneak up and attack, uh, the carrier battle yeah. group. So we have some interesting capabilities from missiles and rockets to uh, harpoons and sonobuoys, and we do some pretty, uh, kind of yeah. like sophisticated engineering-based warfare. You know, we kind yeah. of play these interesting chess matches with uh, the submarines and go around looking for uh, very interesting aspects of warfare. We're very, um, what's called electronic warfare. We're very electronic yeah. warfare centric. So, uh, that takes about an hour to explain, <laughs> but we've got some high tech computers on board that do some special things. And it was a unique aspect of uh, the military to be a part of.
1: For sure. And the last question, how many, um, how many like deployment of the missiles or harpoons would you say you did on average a year? Was it like something that would happen often or So
2: I hate to burst bubbles, (laughs) but if you watch like Top Gun and it seems like these guys, like they need to get practice in, right? So they're just dropping bombs and blowing stuff up. And you're like extremely lucky to get a practice missile shot in. (laughs) It's probably expensive. Like, Put it this way. Some of the missiles we shoot and some of the buoys we deploy, they're worth tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. we're not just gonna right. blow that stuff up for fun. So, there's a lot yeah. of practice and a lot of simulation <laughs> for sure. For I sure. And, but so if I- anybody asks, I've blown up a lot <laughs> yeah, we'll edit that out. No, just
0: kidding. I love it. I love it. And in general, I'm, I'm guessing it took a lot of time management skills in order to kind of balance your real estate business and, and what you were aiming to accomplish there, as well as your your responsibilities on, on the ship. Can you maybe walk through some hardships that came about, like balancing everything and how you're implementing that today in terms of like time management?
2: Well, look, um, very specifically when I was on that last deployment and the guys were buying properties, I was getting up at, I was up at 2 a.m., 4 a.m., any, any day, any hour of the day, excuse me. I would just get up and get on my computer. I was actually uh, meeting up with a mastermind sunday mornings in in San Diego. That meetup is at seven a m but mm-hmm. depending on, wh- on where I was, it was eleven p m one a m two a m whatever yeah but ironically enough, because my schedule was so controlled and there was nothing else going on, I kind of found it easy to make all those meetings in a way because mm-hmm. I had some autonomy i was you know I was running a um A division of about 110 people. And because I was my own, my own man, I could make time to get in front of the computer screen when I needed to. But actually here in San Diego, where there's kind of a routine and a schedule, and it's kind of odd to be at home and be up at three in the morning, like, I actually have a harder time squeezing everything into the daylight hours, right? Yeah. Because now I'm using my normal 12 hours of of a workday and not just n- hours in the middle of the night. So in a way, I've kind of lost some of my time because I have to squeeze more into a smaller day. It's quite yeah. quite weird. But when it comes to um, you know management and task management, I took a lot of things from the Navy. I mean, some of the stuff we did was um, intensive, time-critical, real-time solutions. If you don't figure something out, uh, bad things are going to happen. For instance, unfortunately, uh, an aircraft crashed into the flight deck of our aircraft carrier while we were out there. And it was a great example of watching hundreds of people come together and, uh, find a solution, right. Clean up the, clean up the runway yeah. and the flight deck so that other people could land. We had aircraft in the air in the middle of the ocean. They've got nowhere to go. There's no alternate. And there's interesting scenarios and situations you get to put into, that don't have a script and you need mm. to prioritize and figure out what matters. Yes. And that kind of come, you know, relates to property management in the sense that you build a business model. So there's a script, but mm. things happen, right? We had a property in Austin where there was a gas leak and that happened in the winter when people yeah. are going to be cold, cold, right. even in yep. Texas. Yeah. So you have to start thinking, okay, what matters? Well, you got to prioritize the tenants and ensure they're okay okay, now we've got to deal with securing the gas, right? We got to make sure this isn't a huge kaboom issue. And that involves the city, that involves the energy company. And you have to start prioritizing what gets done and what you do in those first couple of critical hours because your damages can become worse depending on what your situation is. Water leaks, water to me is the enemy of real estate. Water (laughs) can do you no good. It either costs you or it damages things. And um, that's another situation where you really, you know, you really need to pay attention to what the plan is. But when things get off plan, you need to figure out where are you going to find the manpower and the resources, the financial resources to keep things from getting worse. And once you do have resources lined up, who's actually going to be accountable and who's going to work with you to provide the solution and get you back on track. So a lot of, a lot of those management skills definitely came from my experience in the Navy.
0: Well, that's awesome. I think it's so important that you emphasize the, uh, the ability to pivot. And that's something we've learned, like you're, you have to be quick on your toes and and be able to react. And and that's why like entrepreneurship is all about solving problems, specifically multifamily or really investing in real estate in general. It's all about being able to solve problems. And a lot of times those problems are like, we we call them putting out fires because every day there's there's another problem. And it's like, all right, this is literally how it is. This is the actual act of investing. A lot of times it's encountering and overcoming issues and obstacles that you didn't really anticipate coming.
2: You guys are in an escrow right now, right? We're working on something for sure. Yeah. You got something going on. Yeah, always. <laughs> and we are as well. And it's our biggest raise ever as a lead sponsor. And it's it's crazy. The summer of 2022 has been different from the last 10 summers. It's become harder. Debt's more expensive. The numbers yep. aren't as easy. People are retrading. You know, the market's not in chaos, but it's been hard to be a syndicator. It's been right. hard to make a lot of puzzle pieces fit together. And you have to keep in the back of your mind that while escrow has been kind of crazy, when we close, that's the start. Yeah. Escrow is not the game. Right. Raising capital is not the game. Operating and managing these properties is the game. That's you got to the get there
1: first, is. right?
2: <laughs> right. And you can't forget that. There's right. there's so yeah, many yeah. people focused on you know buying more properties, raising more money, getting into the next deal that they forget yeah. that once you've secured the deal, mm-hmm. that's where all the liability is. That's where you need to perform. And that's where you really need to uh, have an impact if you're going to actually be successful on behalf of your investors. Mm. So it goes back to good management.
1: 100%. And one thing that we've been personally experiencing, as you mentioned, and, and when you're kind of dealing with what I like to call pressure, and it's kind of chosen pressure, right? We kind of wanted this. It's good pressure and better than, in my opinion, not being in the arena. You're I probably assume... growing. You're probably exactly, growing, exactly. right? Exactly. And it's scary. It's hard doing these things. It's not always the most comfortable thing. And I assume, obviously, your background, you were always in those uncomfortable positions. And I'm not sure if you've ever been in like a life or death situation, but in comparison to this, would you say this is very similar, is it easier, is it harder? And in what ways is it different? If you don't mind.
2: Well, Staying on that analogy of being uncomfortable and growing, I'm afraid of heights.
1: You're afraid I, of dying. You know I, used <laughs> to, I
2: used to get sick in the middle of the aisle on the Delta or United flight going to, you know, Florida or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I got over a lot to to uh, <laughs> go through the career that I went through, but you're right. It's, funny. it's a lot about just overcoming your fears, but most of your fears are there because of the unknown, right? I mean, there's there's a quintessential yeah. phrase I'm trying to remember here, but a lot of our fear comes from just not knowing. Fear not is a lack of experience. education, yeah. So once you once you get that, the only way you're going to get it is by doing, right? You could read about what you guys are doing right now in a book. You could go take a course. You could take so-and-so's mentorship thing or whatever, get some training, but until you do it, I, the thing that I love right now, even with the chaos that we've had this summer, crazy escrow, looking at more properties, mm-hmm. I love being in all the conversations with the bankers and the lenders and the investors and all the areas that are not my wheelhouse. I like to get on as many phone calls and Zooms with the guys that aren't my responsibility because I learn and I understand what that sounds like. And I understand what the tonality is of the situation, right? Wouldn't you love to be in the room with you know pick your pick your large developer as he's trying to raise money for the next Sears Tower yes. or Chrysler mm-hmm. building. What does it sound like to ask someone for two hundred million dollars, right? That's a conversation that you just learn from by being there for five minutes, right so that's kind of what a lot of stuff that I've pulled from, yeah. uh, especially this summer is getting more mm-hmm. growth
0: Oh, I love that. it's all about embracing uncertainty. I think like, like I was touching on earlier, it's not necessarily knowing what's going to happen, but it's trusting that you're going to be able to pivot and like adapt and, and overcome whatever does happen and having faith that it'll work out in the end. And, and I would love to know, you keep kind of uh, saying like, like you guys are encountering some some obstacles and we've also encountered some obstacles. I'd love to know a recent one that you're willing to share of uh, an obstacle that came up in your business and how you overcame it.
2: Well, look, everyone has seen debt change dramatically from, well, in the commercial space being 3 3% and change to going to, you know, basically the equivalent of 6 plus percent. Yeah. Yeah. And that has been eye opening because I did not appreciate or understand investor sentiment. I did not understand capital flows, right? If a lot of people are pouring into an industry or a sector or all buying the same thing. I'm looking at you, cryptocurrencies. (laughs) Everybody's doing it. It's a good time for everyone. And everyone just has this emotion and opinion as an investor or someone throwing money away that this is working for a lot of other people, so it's going to work for me too. And they stop looking at numbers. They stop looking at the spreadsheets, and they go in on faith, and their faith is high. So now when they hear about debt going up and Ukraine war and problems in the marketplace, and oh, by the way, the people paying attention to the numbers will tell you that, yeah, like the debt, the whole situation, it is factually changing. There is an underlying uh, expense here that has changed. It's not just all emotional. Once you combine some facts and some hard data with some emotion, the herd just runs and it becomes so much harder to get people to say, And look at your deal and your property and realize, oh, this is still a great situation. This still makes sense. And this still fulfills my needs and my objectives. And uh, the conversation just is frankly harder. It's harder with everybody. So uh, it's been a challenge, but it has made me appreciate what it really takes to raise when things aren't extremely easy.
0: I love that. I love that. And I think Jeffrey and I, we can relate as a team as well. I mean, it's also, it's kind of cool because like you, we were, we're newer to the industry. And so we're almost like, we haven't really fully formed any paradigm about what, like, is it, is it a capital market? Is it a deal market? And so it's just like, we, we're constantly learning and we're learning in real time because everything's happening and everything's changing. Um, and I did want to know, what is your perspective? Like when you're having these conversations, why do you believe multifamily is still a sound investment in this environment?
2: Oh, man. There are so many reasons. To boil it down to one thing, I know you've heard it before, but people live there. (laughs) And we all know that we are not interested in uprooting ourselves. We're not interested in needing to move. We're not interested in going through a hassle every 12 months to find the next spot or a better spot or being forced into a worse spot, right? And that's not to say that we've got everybody by the collar and, you know, that's, kind of the leverage we have, but it's just the nature of real estate that people want to stay in it. They'll do what they have to, to stay in it. And it is the first and largest expense for every American family that they want to pay. If the kid asks for an iPad, you don't necessarily have to buy that. Or maybe you go with the alternate, you go with the Samsung. Mm -hmm. If, uh, you know, the daughter wants a new car because she's 16, that's a huge expense. My rent... (laughs) is a lot more expensive, but everyone's going to pay it, right? Mm. It's something that, it's just inherent and it's perhaps the most stable sector because of that, because everyone is incentivized to continue to make rent, as as am I, right? Yep. And it sounds demonic in that sense, but it's only demonic or nefarious, if you will, yep. if you as the owner or the operator or the investor aren't holding up your end of the bargain. Yeah. You're charging somebody two grand for rent, and you're letting the place fall apart, and operations are a mess, and, and you're just a slumlord, like, you deserve everything that comes at you. It's not going to work out in the long run. And you guys, you see this. You see investors. You've taught, had conversations with savvy people that love to find those 20-unit, 60-unit deals that were inherited or run down, or the landlord starts thinking, I don't want to put 30 grand into this to repaint it or fix the AC, whatever the case is, and they just let it die and they don't realize that they're killing their own value because they're not savvy. They don't they don't understand that by giving up a portion of their cash flow and hitting pause on that very lucrative situation they probably assume they're in, they would be adding value to their own own portfolio and their own asset and things would work out better in the long run. But people who aren't prepared and they're not true investors and don't see the big picture here would rather just Take that cash and screw everybody else over. And at the end of the day, a bunch of guys like you come in and say, Yeah, hey, well, we're gonna offer you this for your apartment complex. Oh, by the way, had you taken better care of it, you'd be getting another 30% above what you're offering. Uh, we're offering you, right? So yeah. at the end of the day, um, it pays to be a good tenant and not make a mess and not put holes in the wall and not create chaos. <laughs> and it pays to be a good owner and look out for everyone else so that you and your investors are taken care of. But yeah, no, hundred percent. And it seems like your company, which i I could have,
1: I, I was pretty confident that you all focus on a value add strategy and approach. And I've spoken with a lot of different operators, and they seem like they're tweaking their deal criteria, which we're doing. Uh, we're tweaking it in regards to the type of property. So we used to be open, more open to Class C than we are now. A higher vintage in regards to when it was built. Um now looking at 1980s or newer, if possible. But uh, in regards to yours, has have you seen that change in any way? It sounds like you're still op- obviously looking for value add opportunities where you can go and enhance the the assets as well as the overall community. But in regards to like the specific criteria, has that tweaked over the last few months?
2: Over the last few months, no rewind six to eight months. Yes, we you know we're paying attention. We're listening to CBRE. We're listening to the big REITs. And it, it became very clear that that cap rate compression that you guys are really digging into here, the value in the Bs to As has started to make a lot more sense than doing huge cap, ep, cap yeah. X budgets on the C class. And you've seen multiple groups stay much more focused on the Bs and A minuses. Um, and I have seen multiple deals move in a way where People thought they were going to do $5 million of CapEx on a class C and turn it into a class B. And they just said, you know what? We can sell this thing in 12 months yeah. uh, without burning any of our money and doing a forced appreciation situation on this property. And we can just sell it to the next guy at a premium, basically. With rent with uh, debt rates coming up, that's yeah. initi- that situation has really disappeared and you've got to do your CapEx. Mm-hmm. And horribly enough that has coincided with horrible, horrible logistics chain issues, right? So now you've yeah. got people who need to order 50 doors, 50 washers and dryers, and they're yeah. getting 10 of them, if any, right? So it's <laughs> it's become a really unique environment. But I think overall, the case for the B class and up just became a lot stronger. And it makes less and less sense to look at C class. But again, back up a little bit. And it all depends on scale and who you're talking about. If right. you're the investor with a couple guys doing a JV thing or you're doing your own thing and you're looking at six units, 20 units, 40 units, that space, it doesn't matter. I shouldn't say it doesn't matter, but from class C to class A minus in that space, man, those are siloed situations and a lot depends on what's gone wrong with the owner, what's gone wrong with the specific property and what price point you're really buying at. And that's that's the beauty of staying in the small space is that you keep finding unique situations that do not go with the general flow. You got to remember right. going back to capital markets, there's a deal market, if you will, where most deals at a, a large level where hundreds of millions of dollars can flow into those deals, those all get standardized because if there's if there's um, a lower risk reward ratio on a deal, more money is going to flow into it and it's going to push that purchase price up. Right, So when you get into kind of the the higher level stuff or the larger things, there's basically so much capital looking to be placed that it fills in all the opportunities. But when you stay at that small space, you get all these isolated scenarios and you really need to know your stuff and look at each one of those one by one, because the opportunities are there, whether it's classless or classy, right? (laughs) The quality is one thing, but the exact situation of that property matters so much more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on the variability and like uncertainty in the debt market. And I'd love to know what is your perspective and approach to the debt yeah. market right now? Yeah. And I mean,
1: to go off of that, like a lot of people are in that we've spoken to, we've been to different seminars. I speak to a lot of people on a daily basis for the operators that have a lot of experience and there are a lot of them are leaning more towards permanent agency debt or some type of fixed rate debt uh, in regards to what your business plan is. Is it typically, you know, using that fixed rate or are you also still looking at bridge loans just depending on the deal? And if you
0: could,
2: for anyone in the audience that isn't aware, can you just explain the difference between the two? Yeah, so we're still we're in a bridge loan right now. Yeah, we've dealt with warehouse warehouse lending in the past. To bring everyone up to speed, imagine bridge lending as being a loan against a property that is not going to qualify for agency debt. And you want agency debt because just like your single family home, agency debt is effectively backed by the United States of America. We lower the risk so substantially for lenders that meet the buy box or the lend box for agency debt that it stays at a very low fixed interest rate. And if a lender, a non-agency lender doesn't have that guarantee and that kind of risk reward ratio that the uh, backed lenders, that the agency lenders have, they take a greater chunk, it's higher interest but it's also a more creative space. You can get into <clears> interest-only situations. You can um, adjust things in terms of when your payments are, what your extensions look like, when your costs are really being incurred. So point being, everyone wants to gravitate towards the agency uh, agency debt because it's going to be the cheapest, cheapest situation across a large timeline. People will gravitate into bridge because you've got a lot of construction to do. You don't qualify for agency. Or you're being very creative with the numbers and helping lower your overall principal and interest costs by paying interest only. So you're manipulating your deal by getting effectively uh, not cheaper debt, but lower payments month to month. So, point being, uh, if you're buying a single family home today and you don't realize it, you're basically getting into a a debt package that is completely guaranteed and backed to some extent, by the United States of America. And that is why you can find, at least a year ago, two and a quarter percent interest rates, which is insane. But um, the federal government has its hands on the scales in terms of making agency and federal-backed debt extremely inexpensive. So that's a very attractive scenario. I think I covered the original question, but steer me if I did not.
1: In, In regards to what your company is looking to do now, given where we are with the debt market, is there has that changed? I know obviously you said that you're still doing bridge loans, but are you looking to do
2: permanent agency if that's an option, or is it just Especially, not? Especially so, it comes down a little bit to philosophy. I would like right. to hold things for seven years plus, ten years plus. Frankly, you need an investor pool that wants to do that. Right. And a lot of people are attracted to the large IRR and the yeah. flip situation that's really going on right now. That's probably best served with bridge. It's probably best served with interest only for about three years. Mm. Yeah. Point being. The better package and the more stable package is going with agency. If you're going with bridge like we have, you better ensure you have enough time to get the business plan completed and you should know why and how you're exiting. So for instance, at approximately three years, we would like to refinance. We'd love to go agency. Yeah. We're using bridge because it was what was possible on this right. particular property. It's what was necessary to even get the, get into the deal. Yeah. So it makes yeah. sense to go bridge. It's the only way it's going to happen. If I could have gone agency the, from the start, I'm sure, we, I'm sure we would have, right? Yeah, just for sure.
0: For sure. I love that. I love how yeah. you kind of tied it into like, I've never heard anyone kind of put it from the perspective of the investor and like
1: what they're looking for. Yeah. 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 And I just have like a, not a tangent question, but very quickly. Uh, let's say there's a, you know, you have a few days just in theory to close on a deal. Or let's just say like you're struggling on your raise, right? On a, on a deal. Um, yeah. What are some things that your company will typically do when you're approaching that deadline? Like is there certain different strategies and how you're moving? To solve that problem, especially right now, and a lot of our listeners, if they're active out operators and they can relate, and or are seeing that right now, a lot of people are struggling to raise capital on their deals. So, just want to see what your your group is Mm -hmm. currently doing to solve that issue.
2: In particular, for all the aspiring syndicators out there, you really, you really want to know the level of commitment that the capital dollars you think you have access to really have. Right. So, if you know so-and-so's uncle might give me a hundred grand. Is that a might? Is that a maybe? And what's the certainty there? And you can measure it through trust. Mm -hmm. How many times have you talked with that person? What do they know you for? Do they only know you through real estate Were they referred to you by someone else who's done real estate with you? Is this a random person on LinkedIn who you met at a coffee shop? Measure the amount of trust that people have in you And it will start to dictate how prepared you really are for that million dollar or $10 million raise. Yeah, That has been a giant learning point of this summer that the most capital that or the most equity that we've brought into the deal has come from our best and most trusted individuals that have participated with us before or know people who have. The people who trust us least, and that's not nefarious either. That's not saying they think we're shady or whatever, but the people who trust us least are obviously the hardest to convert because when I start talking to them, I'm talking about a deal that's favorable for them and for me, but they don't necessarily know me. They don't necessarily know our brand. They haven't been in the circle of trust. I haven't been in their circle of trust. Mm -hmm. So measure your capability via trust and not how many millionaires you know or how many big checks you think are out there, right? Measure it by how confident you feel and how confident people feel in you. So lessons learned. I'm going to skip through a couple of... um, long-winded stories and go right to lessons learned i would highly suggest for anyone especially if you're pushing bigger and you're trying to raise four million compared to the million you were raising six months ago know exactly how committed or at least have a large commitment up front know that if you actually submit the loi it gets accepted and the psa gets written out a week or two later boom you're in and you've got maybe money hard or whatnot Who's the first million dollars? If you don't know where that first 25 or 30% of your raise is coming from and they don't already know about you and they don't already know about the deal and they don't even know this is going on, it's not actually there, guys, right? So I would definitely line up, let's call it 30% of what you need. And by line up, I mean, all they need is for you to have a property. And if they know it's within their buy box, they're in, right? That's how you want to measure that. Yeah. And then start looking at filling that 30% to 80% and figuring out where that's coming from. And then from 80% to 100%, that last 20%, I would highly suggest having your own equity lined up, having your own loans or lines of credit lined up to help yourself in a sticky situation and ensure that you're able to fill some amount of the gap. Yeah. Because not having that safety means you're going to be uh, running around in circles in the last few weeks of your escrow. This has yeah. been, for us, this has turned into a nearly four-month escrow. We got on your contract basically the day that the first interest rate hike went into effect. So we've gone through four rate hikes. Things have changed substantially across the deal. There was a PREF equity team that we thought we were going to work with that, that ended up backing out. I mean, we must have talked to 80 different PREF equity teams. I, I, I know we did actually, 81.
1: Yeah. That's, that's, that, that that's sounds a lot of like people a, who didn't, yeah. didn't
2: want to come out to play, right? And right. that also means when you're talking about your investor base, if you get a Pref Equity team on board, that changes the results for your investors. Right. How much it cash flows, what their mm. uh, eventual IRR is. And some people just want cash flow. Some people want a large total return. Yeah. So, depending on what your investor base is used to or looking for, changing the model may make things easier or more difficult in terms mm. of your capital raise. So, again, you have to measure. How large is my audience? How committed is my audience? And what have they been looking for? And is this still on track with what I've offered before? If it's something new, something different, then you're going to have a harder time. Just naturally, less people will be inclined to want to participate with you if it's not what they were expecting. Right. So those are some of the some of the things we've gone through and figured out this summer. That's amazing.
0: That's awesome. I appreciate you shared a ton of wisdom. And it is time for our speed round. Bradley, are you ready? Let's do it. Awesome. All right. First question: What has been a major first? What is one thing that you're doing differently today in your business that you weren't doing when you first started in real estate?
2: Something we're doing differently?
0: Yeah, that that you're doing differently today that you weren't doing when you
2: first started in real estate. With four partners over the last three years, we've started to get more and more into our own lanes. We don't all need to show up to the same meeting. We don't all need to be on the same phone calls. We're all very aware of what everyone's doing. And an advantage we have is that we can kind of be in two places or four places at once. Like today's great example, right, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it allows us to all learn together. It allows us to all have each other's backs and cover down so we have more flexibility. But perhaps most importantly at all uh most importantly of all, we all want the same amount of success for our company. because we can all focus on something different at the same time, it allows us to really put, put forth that same energy and effort into yeah. each one of the lanes without stepping on each other's toes or um, you know being detrimental by doubling up and having three of us all focused on moving the same rock, right? If there's 30 Mm -hmm. rocks to move, we don't need all four of us with our hands on each one of those rocks. We would all just need to take our own and ensure we we get it done. So that's how we're doing things a little differently than we did in the beginning. No, I love that. I
0: love that. Now, question number two, what has been the biggest learning lesson or failure that you've had uh,
2: recently? And what did you take away from that experience? I would actually say that a failure we've had has actually been our ability to intake more deals during this escrow. Like I said, it's been all, it's been all summer, right? And we've had multiple things come across our plate that we likely couldn't, we really couldn't participate in or get under contract for ourselves because of how we were set up and how focused we were on ensuring this deal uh, continued marching Mm -hmm. on successfully. Right. And it's been eye-opening to see what things we're going to need to tweak so that we could do two properties, two escrows at once, et cetera. Of course, we're paying attention to five other properties right now, but paying attention to the weekly mechanics and, and getting updates with property management and whatnot in a timely fashion is a lot different than the hundreds of thousands of touch points with lenders, brokers, yeah. uh, contractors, investors that we've had all summer, which mm-hmm. takes up a lot of time, right? So it goes back to time management realistically, allowing you to do more things at the same time.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I do want to expand on that and kind of tweak the second, the third question. Um, so normally I'll ask, like, what are you looking to do moving forward? And what are you aiming to accomplish in the future? Uh, but so there's like two schools of thought when it comes to acquiring properties, especially right now, a lot of people are sitting it out and it's very clear that you guys are, are actively looking for opportunities. And it seems like you guys are aware of an opportunity that uh, in, in the market right now that a lot of people may not be seeing. So can you maybe expand on why that is that you're still actively looking for properties and how that ties into your long-term
2: goals for your business? Every investor that considers commercial real estate or over-residential will eventually, if not already, appreciate the fact that, because rent, the gross rent on the property is really dictating what the property's value could be. I know you guys already know and NOI over cap rate gets you to your value, but because it's dictated by rent, um, compared to residential, you really, really need to realize that you are paying for a yield on your money. And that is what the investment is. It is that cash on cash yield that is coming back to you quarter after quarter, month after month. And in comparison to what the investment is trading at, what really matters most is what you're yielding while you hold that investment. Because the marketplace might pay me less for this same asset three years from now. It might pay me more, who knows but what i yielded is what really matters. So point being guys, right now there are less people at the bid, you know, there there's less people at the final table. There's 3 yeah. people instead of 30 groups. Less people are looking for real estate. More people are backing out. Less capital is available. That's a great time to be a buyer because you're paying less for right. the same thing. You're getting more yield and so long as those rents, that gross rent hasn't changed, occupancy is still 97-98%, you still got the same amount of tenants the rent rate's still naturally going up because everyone's moving to Austin, Dallas, Houston, et cetera. You're getting into better situations and better properties simply because the buyers aren't there. The reason for why the property is valuable still exists. In fact, it's getting better and better, Mm -hmm. but less and less people are willing to purchase that asset. So right now is a great time to be a buyer.
0: I love that. Buy the dip. I'm just (laughs) kidding. I
2: just wanted to say that. (laughs) <laughs> no, get out. Get out. Shut
0: up. <laughs> what is the number one book that you would say has been the best uh
2: impact has the, had the biggest impact on your personal and or business life how to win friends and influencing people um and it's been like four or five years since i read that but it really changed my mindset there was a time where where I wasn't as social. I wasn't as concerned about networking. I wasn't as concerned about other people knowing what I'm up to and knowing what they're doing, how I can help them, how they can help me. But man, if you're going to make it in this industry, um, as an independent, at a big firm, climbing up the ladder, creating your own ladder, whatever the situation is, you got to know how to work with people and you got to know how to get people to see you, appreciate you, understand what you offer and if you can't do that, it's going to be a long and difficult road. So I have, um, I have not reread that book in a long time, but I'll probably pull it out once again this fall and just give it another look as we look to uh, you know, expand our own capabilities and our own network. Yeah, that was one of the first business books that I ever read. And it completely changed my, my life. So I love it. Is, this is the thing about social media and podcasts and all that. People tend to give the same answers. And there's a yeah. reason for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Like, there's a reason. There's a reason why I wake up early in the morning and I work out first thing because as soon as I got into that habit, it changed things. There's a reason why I started reading all these books, the same hundred books everyone talks about, because it will change things. It'll change your mindset. It'll change your knowledge and it'll change your capability. Right. So I hate to be the the next guy saying how to win friends and influence people, but You got to read it. No, it's so true. It's so true. And before we started
0: the conversation, uh, you gave us a great piece of advice that I want you to expand on, because typically I would ask if you could leave us with one piece of advice uh, from this episode, what would that be? But you mentioned to not be in a rush, um, especially if you're younger and the longer you're in this industry, the more, uh, I guess, the more resilient you become throughout your career. So can you maybe expand on that point?
2: I said this as well to uh, an aspiring syndicator and I feel like I'm still an aspiring syndicator. I wouldn't call myself anything else. I think the people that have invested with us know that this is property number six. I think they, you know, they do know um, that we are not JP Morgan. They do know that we don't (laughs) have 60,000 doors under our belts, but they realize that the knowledge and capability is there and, and they take the risk for, for multiple different reasons, if you will. But when I say go slow and take your time, that doesn't mean put forth a hundred percent effort, right? It simply means that you have to realize take any business person, take anybody's wealth, take anybody's portfolio, the bulk of that growth is at the end of the exponential curve, right? An exponential curve basically starts out flat for 10 years, whatever the time frame is, it's pretty flat. And then it starts to tip up and then Let's put this on a 30-year scale, right? 30 years. If you guys go from 20 till 50 years old, in the last two years of your career, you're going to probably make more money than you did in the first 10 or 15. That's just how it shakes out. And part of that's from capability, part of that's from network, part of that's from actual value. But Barbara Corcoran had a great quote, Barbara from Shark Tank, right? Mm -hmm. She said this on, I don't know, some social media clip. And the second I heard it, it, it just stuck in my mind and I've never forgot it but she used to be one of the lower ranked brokers in Manhattan and then a recession hit and people quit and they got out of the business or they lost their business and she moved up and it happened again and again and again mm. i think she's been through nine recessions if i've got that right and 3 recessions ago it put her into the top 100 2 recessions ago it put her in the into the top 20 and now she's arguably one of the three biggest names in in Manhattan, right? I don't know her exact numbers, her exact stats, mm-hmm. but everyone in the United States knows of Barbara Corcoran, at least Barbara from Shark Tank at this mm-hmm. point. And it's because she kept showing up. And over time, other people did not. I mean, look around, guys. You're talking to me. You're interviewing all these people. Not everyone's going to be doing the same thing two or 10 years from now, right? Yes. And I know there's pressure to buy more deals, buy bigger deals, find more complexes get your first 1,000 units, get your first 10,000 units. Survive, survive, (laughs) survive, and you will thrive because you'll continue to be the guy showing up. All of our opportunities at Symphony have come from showing up. And the first time Ellis Hammond ever told me, he said something along the lines of, dude, I just keep showing up. You just got to keep showing up and things will happen. And the first time he ever said that, I had heard it. I'd seen it on social media, but I didn't quite get it. And now I have also shown up enough where I I have faith and I know that showing up is no kidding 80 or 90% of what it takes. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous. If you're not in the room, you can't get the deals. You can't talk to the investors. You can't meet the brokers. You really got to show up. So think like Barbara and realize you got to show up again and again for a long time if you want to get to the top of that exponential curve.
0: That's awesome advice. That's a great note to end the conversation. Thank you so much, Bradley, for your time. Yeah, if anyone in our audience wants to learn more about you, connect with you, or just follow you
2: on your journey. Where can they go to do that? You can email me, Bradley, at symphonycapitalgroup.com. symphonycapitalgroup.com is our website. If you search for me, um, Bradley Kirschbaum or Symphony Capital Group, we're on all the major platforms, you know, i all Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. Awesome. TikTok. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for your time, Bradley. Bradley.
0: And thanks everyone for tuning in today to the Real Estate Monopoly. Please make sure to leave a five-star review and a comment down in the whatever platform you're using. And guys, let's get out there and take action. Have a great rest of your day.